five, four, three. James Cook again on that left side, and this time into Cowboys territory. And still chugging inside the 45. Fans love it. He's got eight. He's got nine. He's got 11. <laughs> Allen here. has a man. Caught. Touchdown. It's Cook. Cook again. Why not? James Cook through everyone, and he scores again. Block airs it out. Metcalf downfield. He's got it! And out of bounds to stop the clock at the 29. Block. End zone. It is caught! Touchdown, Seattle! Smith and Jigba has put the Seahawks on top. You're listening to another edition of Sports Today with Peter J. Here's your host, Peter J. Mulroy. You know, I'll get into my week 16 picks in a little bit. Um, I will let you know that one of them is the Cincinnati Bengals, who are just getting absolutely pounded by the Pittsburgh Steelers in a game that has huge postseason implications uh, moving forward for both teams. That being said, welcome to the latest edition of Sports Today with Peter J on Christmas Eve Eve this Saturday, December 23rd, a touch after 7 p.m. on the East Coast. Lots to get into tonight. We're going to start right in the NFL. As I said, the picks will come later for those of you uh, who follow along each and every week. We'll get into the college football ball breakdown, and then we got to talk some baseball at the end of the show, obviously with everything surrounding Yamamoto uh, and all the storylines that came with that signing uh, with the Japanese 25-year-old going to the Dodgers, both the storylines and, and, and the meat of those storylines involving uh, the finances. But you heard in the open in the highlights, and obviously last week uh, was a good week. I mean, you, you had really the start of the final month worth of games that began last week. And at the end of tonight's opening package was that Seattle victory over the Philadelphia Eagles, who, good team, sure they are. Uh, still a legit contender? Sure they are. The Eagles are reeling right now with three consecutive losses coming into Week 16, a Christmas Day date uh, with the New York Giants, who are not mathematically, but basically out of this entire thing um, after last week. And you heard in that open, and I only played the one clip of Tommy DeVito almost getting his head ripped off his shoulders. Look, the Giants went down 24-6 last week um, to New Orleans. Were perhaps many Giant fans... You know, riding high at one point in the season, two and eight, you win three in a row, led by DeVito, who goes three and one over a four-game stretch with the only loss coming to Dallas. And now you're five and eight in the game out of the playoffs, feeling pretty damn good. Yeah, because folks, by the way, you know, you you might be able to see a situation where sure the Giants lose out and finish five and twelve, and maybe they're in the top three of the draft picks, depending on how things work out down the stretch. But it was okay to root for the Giants to win games. 
everybody falls in love with these draft picks just like they do minor leaguers and unproven commodities in baseball with, oh, we, we can't move on from that prospect. Well, you don't know how they're going to turn out. So what the hell is the point of watching the game if you're not going to root for the team you've watched your entire life? So it was okay to root for the Giants last week. Didn't happen, okay? This team wasn't going very far if they happened to miraculously backdoor their way in last week. And I don't want this to sound like the only reason I chose that cliff was because the reason the Giants lost last week was because of Tommy DeVito. He actually wasn't that bad last week. But I will say, you saw DeVito a couple of weeks ago when he made his debut, and certainly in that game against the Commanders when he was sacked nine times. You know, about six of those sacks were his fault holding on to the football. Uh, still new to this entire environment. Last Sunday against the Saints, that Giants offensive line was as bad as it was all year. Uh, it had been patchwork. That core that they were with Phillips replacing Neal had been working. You know, by all accounts last week, uh, Tyree Phillips wasn't all that bad. Uh, but the rest of Justin Pugh looked over a match. Uh, Demario Davis was doing whatever he wanted for the Saints. Uh, Giants got issues across the board. And the crux of it is on the offensive side. I mean, that defense is gassed. I think we can all see that uh, with that loss last week to New Orleans. That's a New Orleans team, you know, and then, then of course, they follow it up with a loss of their own um, in, in a game that had playoff implications to start Week 16 Thursday night with an eight-point loss to the Rams. But when you talk about that Saints team, that's a dink-and-dunk offense. Carr can go down the field when he needs it, but if the run game is working and they're able to move the chains and pick up chunk yardage, that's how you exhaust the defense, and when the opposing offense is not doing much, you're going to win games with that methodology, and that's what Dennis Allen and the Saints have been pretty good at this year. Um, almost pulled it off Thursday against the Rams, but they were just too much for the Giants, as are as have a lot of teams been this year. Uh, that's why the Giants are 5-9. and nine. Uh, DeVito's been a great story. There's clearly a place for him in this league. Um, and despite the Giants, I'll say this, despite the Giants' record at 5-9, and nine, knowing they're not going into the playoffs, there's something to prove. And there's things to be gathered this weekend, Christmas Day game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, the Eagles need the game. Philly's going to the playoffs. There are only three teams in the NFC that have locked up their fates as far as going to the playoffs. That's Philly, Dallas, and San Francisco. Everybody else is, that's in the hunt is just that. They're still competing for those spots. So Philly knows they're in the tournament. It's a matter of still wanting to outside shot their way into the winning the division after losing and getting their doors blown off a week ago against Dallas Cowboys. So Philly's got a lot to prove here, but this is the Giants and the theme this entire week with this New York Giants team. You heard it from GM Joe Shane, Brian Dable, upper management people in the know with this organization. They've got to start closing this talent gap in the NFC East. I mean, unless you were born yesterday, uh, it is, it's alarming and it's shocking how horrible the New York Giants have been against the Eagles and the Giant uh, against the Eagles and the Cowboys. And this is since last year, and now almost through two complete seasons, Brian Dable's really got nothing to show for what he's been able to accomplish against Dallas and Philly, which is nothing. Sure, competitive in the game in, in Philly a year ago, but outside of that, dis dismantled in the playoffs, which kind of set the tone for, the, for, for this season. And I think we've seen that. Talent depleted. I think most people thought the Giants would take a step back. It's been ugly at times. I do give Brian Dable a lot of credit for keeping things together when it started to get really bad. The low point being the, the loss to the Jets. 
because the Giants had the game won. But you can you can learn a lot about a team and and seeing what you might have to hit your wagons to moving forward. Now, you know the Giants, at least for another year, like her to lump it. You're with Daniel Jones, unless he's not healthy. He's your guy under center next year. Front office ownerships basically come out and said it, and contract's going to dictate that too with the 40 mil. There's the out clause the Giants can get out after two years. So you would think going into the draft offensive line, well, you, you want to get a more consistent look the last three weeks of the season with this core unit that they've been using the last couple of weeks, Sons, Evan, Neal, even as bad as they were a week ago against the Saints. I think that's fair. I think we would all agree with that, especially John Michael Schmitz, who seems to be getting better, more comfortable. He's acclimated better to the starting center position in the National Football League. Justin Pugh is the veteran. This is probably his last run with this organization. However long he decides to play, it probably will just be with the Giants, and that'll be it. Pugh has basically said that himself. But there's other spots along this line that the Giants are going to need to figure out. Now, depending on draft position, if you're in that quarterback classification, that that's where you want to focus your attention and your emotions, Williams and May are probably going to go in the top three, and I assume that's attainable if the Giants were to lose out. Two against the Eagles and one against the Rams. Both the Eagles are going to the playoffs. The Rams, via win Thursday, have played themselves on the inside. We'll talk about the playoff picture later. So it's possible with these meaningful games for both teams, Eagles for seeding, Rams to get in. So as far as quarterbacks, assume May and Williams are off the board. You're probably looking at Bo Nix, Mike Penix from Washington, Heisman winner Jaden Daniels out of LSU. Shador Sanders perhaps later if that's a route you'd be interested in going. There are going to be options there. And if the Giants decide that, hey, after three weeks with this season, we're not going to the playoffs. It's not going to be two years in a row of a postseason berth. All well and good. We have to regroup now. We know what's wrong. We know where we need to focus. We can't have 17 slot receivers and no alpha dog. We've got to figure this out to bookend what we think we have in the veteran Darren Waller when he's healthy. He's very productive, along with Saquon Barkley, and get some weapons. You need stability at the quarterback position. You need stability up front. So those are some of the options the Giants might have, but they need so much more than that than to just dive in to one particular position and say, hey, we got to go get a quarterback now. Because it's Daniel Jones next year regardless. So you can learn a lot, and you should be able to learn a lot. And I know the Giants want to see something starting against Philadelphia Christmas Day. More in-depth look at Tommy DeVito. What can he offer in the future? Who do we have up front that might be with us for the long haul? What's the defense look like schematically? We've talked about the wide receivers, basically lack of production all season outside of the quarterback position and the productivity or lack thereof at times from Jones and Taylor and even DeVito early on. The best thing Tommy DeVito's done under center is protect the football. He's mobile. He's smart. He doesn't do stupid things. He might hold on to it too long, but he doesn't just throw it up for grabs. He'll take the sack. Couldn't do much last week. So. There are going to be things to be gathered the next couple of weeks with this New York Giants team. 
how much of that is going to hold water going into the offseason and beyond. I mean, the April draft is only a couple of months away. So you'll have a clearer picture of what needs. Even now, you know the Giants need stability at the quarterback position. They've needed help up front. I can't believe through the last four coaches and two GMs that the Giants are still talking about having amongst the worst offensive line groupings in the National Football League. Been saying it for years. It's, it, it actually blows my mind that they haven't been able to fix. This is, this is a systemic failure at this point. And that is where I would be focusing most of my attention. You want to hone in on why am I watching a 5-9 and nine football team that has no chance? And Don't give me the math. It, it's over. They're not going anywhere. Focus on the offensive line. The Tyree Phillips of the world. Because I think the kids play pretty damn well. Schmidt's at center. There's cornerstones there. The future of Evan, Evan Neal, Andrew Thomas, when healthy, consistent among the best at that position. So there's reliability there. There's pieces to build around. Now it's time to start doing it. And if you got to throw a couple of bucks, the good thing is the Giants will have money next year. And a remaining schedule this year to, to learn some things at Philly Christmas, home for the Rams New Year's Eve. And then the date with the Eagles to wrap up the season, uh, date time to be announced. So you close with two against a team you haven't been able to do jack you know what against in years, and a Rams team fighting again in the tournament. So it's going to be fun. That is what you would probably be focusing on. You want something to look for with this Giants team. Pay attention to the offensive line because that's the area that needs to be improved the most. You can sell me on quarterback, and you got to get some damn receivers in there. But a crap lot of good it's going to do for you if you can't protect whoever is under center. And week one next year, barring complete and utter change, upheaval or injury, it's going to be Daniel Jones. It's going to be number eight. So from a playoff perspective, the Giants season is over. But from a scouting perspective, there's a lot on the table to be uh, to be learned. And uh, with that, we have our uh, first caller on the line. Uh, Mike, what's up? How yeah, hi, Pete. How you doing? I've, it's been interesting watching DeVito. Uh, one thing I noticed about him is that he holds on to the ball too long. And uh, that's probably because as a young quarterback, he has trouble reading defenses, sure. at least quick quickly anyway and the idea that he hasn't thrown a pick kind of i worry about that because you know like bill parcell says if you never threw an interception you're not taking any chances no, don't get me wrong i don't want him to throw five picks but once in a while you got to force the ball in there a little bit because you can't stand there for six seconds and expect to, to do anything it seemed like the last couple of weeks there had been the urgency, I mean, they opened last week with trying to get it down the field to Hyatt and Slayton. There had seemed to have been the, the, the desire and almost the need to get the ball down the field. And when given the opportunity, Jalen Hyatt has performed well this season. But I think a lot of that has to do with the time you have to throw the ball and who you're throwing it to. That's uh, true. Because there's no alpha on this team. Waller missed a good chunk of the season at the tight end position, and even after some good games, it seemed like there was a reluctancy from the coaching staff to give 
legitimate minutes to the third round pick Hyatt. Um, so I, I don't disagree with what you're saying and taking chances. And, and, at, and at this point, it's probably a moot point, uh, although you might see an open playbook down the stretch here just so these guys can learn some more yeah. about the talent on the field. But when, right. when, you're, when you're struggling to not run for your life and throwing to guys who calling them unreliable would, would be polite, uh, it can be problematic for a rookie quarterback, let alone, for a veteran, let alone a rookie. Yeah, I was surprised last week. I mean, I, I guess because they were stacking the line, but they never tried to establish the running game. And Barkley's like the, their most important player. At least the first series or two, you know, try to run the ball a little bit. Yeah, I, th I think there might have been to the element, too, of underestimating how good that Saints defense really was. Yeah. Uh, Demario Davis from that linebacker position was doing anything he wanted to do last week, uh, quarterbacking that defense, uh, weak side blitzes coming up right through the middle. He was busting through. He dominated the entire offensive line. They couldn't get a hand on him. And when you create pressure like that, doesn't matter who's back there, it's going to blow up the run game, and it certainly blew up the passing game, as we saw. Giants That's couldn't do true. anything. Yeah. After a good opening drive, that was about it. Yeah, very true. So, you know, and we, and and uh, Mike, as always, thank you for the call. But, you know, we, you'll get to see as you move forward, you know, maybe that, as I said to, to Mike, who, who made some good points about throwing the ball down the field, you might see an open playbook here with the Giants still trying to learn more about Tommy DeVito in a small sample size. And I don't mean that as the quarterback of the future. I mean it as someone who might be able to come in, do what he's done now in a time of need, and be that reliable backup quarterback like Tyrod Taylor was before he got hurt. So the Giants got three left at Philly and then home for the Rams and the Eagles, the Eagles date uh, to be announced time as well. You take a look at what's happening across the locker room with the New York Jets, and it's not pretty. So Aaron Rodgers, and, and this is the, 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 the Rodgers saga, really at this point, I mean, I, I don't think you could have been a football fan, really, unless you hated the guy or had a, just a complete disdain for Aaron Rodgers because you were a Green Bay fan and not be excited about the fact that he was going to go play in New York. But after a while... The swan song, the song and dance gets old, where they should have just locked it up, put it away till next year, done the rehab and got on with it. Now you learn that Aaron Rodgers is going to be activated, but he's not going to play this season. So he's going to continue to practice only. His influence was there regardless, but the story doesn't want to seem to go away. So you have last week against the Miami Dolphins, who many people, including myself, believe are a legitimate Super Bowl contender, the way they play on both sides of the ball. And the reason that I was, like many people, looking forward to watching that game was because Zach Wilson was coming off a career game in his own right, 27 of 36, 300-plus yards, two scores. Granted, he was sacked four times, but the Jets hammered Houston, who are a playoff contending team, and probably, unless you're in the Puka Nakua sweepstakes, have the rookie of the year in quarterback C.J. Stroud out of Ohio State. Jets hammer them at MetLife Stadium, and Wilson the biggest reason for that. This is not me saying that I think Zach Wilson is the future for the New York Jets. He clearly is not. But going into a game on the road against probably your biggest rival, if you're old school, it's Miami. If you're new school, it's New England. 
So probably against the biggest rival, the Jets go into Miami and absolutely embarrass themselves. You've grown accustomed to the Jets doing embarrassing things, but this was as bad as, as it had been all season. Where my issues lie with Zach Wilson, and I, and I think many people who can rationalize the game of football and performance, and, and a lot of our callers do this, and those of you who reach out on social media have been so kind in leaving messages, comments, and chiming in, Zach Wilson doesn't protect the football. Anybody can be under duress and a horrible offensive line. Giants don't have a good offensive line. Jets have worst. So you, you, you can be understanding whether it's Wilson, Simeon, whoever else under center for the Jets. They are not being protected like an NFL quarterback should be. But we see time and time again interceptions, ball on the ground, where Zach Wilson just doesn't do intelligent things with the football. And that's a problem. You can say with if, if you want to make comparisons to who is presently running the show for the two New York offensives, Tommy DeVito might not be lighting it up in the stat book, but he doesn't turn it over. When you don't turn the football over, you give yourself an opportunity. And it's not like the Jet defense is devoid of talent. If there was anything that they were able to do, I mean, you look at newcomers who Aaron Rodgers wanted here, Alan Lazard, the guy's been freaking invisible. Randall Cobb has dropped 40% of his targets. Granted, it's not a lot, but 40% of its targets have been dropped. Add on to that the fact that Zach Wilson, who was handed the keys to the car again, cannot hand on, hold on to the football. It's problematic. The Jets know where their problems are. They're not in the quarterback market like many people want them to be because they're stuck with Aaron Rodgers for another year, and, and he'll be age 40-plus. So he's here. Keeps himself healthy. The guy will put up numbers. That's great. It was heartbreaking what happened this year. But the Jets are going to have to get themselves some goddamn help up front, and they're going to have to get another receiver opposite Wilson. Garrett Wilson. So while you're not totally putting the blame on Zach Wilson for last week's 30 to nothing pounding, the kid has got to learn to hold on to the football. The Giants went through this a couple of years ago with Daniel Jones. Last year, he protected the ball. The Giants made the playoffs. That was not an accident, folks. If you protect the ball, good things will happen. I'm not saying if Zach Wilson protects his football, the Jets have 10 wins. They're just not a good football team. But he's also not a very good quarterback. Their offensive line is terrible. And the fear is that when you take a look at next year with Aaron Rodgers, because, look, you got Wilson up for that fifth-year option. It ain't happening. He's gone. Barring some miracle, they're not going to pick up the five-year option. Why would you? You've been eliminated from the playoffs for the 13th consecutive season. You're not, they're going to try to remove headaches and baggage. It was, it, was, it was actually amazing to me that they slotted Wilson back into the starting role. And God bless him, he played really well last week against Houston before absolutely crapping his pants against Miami. 
with help from the offensive line because in the first half, Wilson was pressured on 80% of his dropbacks. Protect the ball, go down, but there's not a lot you can do when you are pressured 80% of the time. I think there is equal blame. And I think you've gathered that from my comments. But with this New York Jet team, because it gets tiresome. I mean, imagine being a, being a Jet fan. This is 13 years of garbage that you've been watching. And you get fed the same BS and BS over and over and over and over again. So I'm going to stop with the Wilson stuff while, to me, it makes sense. And it holds validity especially with how bad that offensive line is and how bad he has played. At what point does coaching become involved in this with the Jets? Because you look at the past two years for the Jets, think about this. There has been a clear and almost perfect collapse during the season from the midway point on. Folks, it is almost to the week. The past two seasons, look at where the Jets were at the midway point, and then look how they finished down the stretch. That's a problem. And that, at some point, has to be put on the coaching. You can like Rob Sala. You can want him to be the guy. That's fine. Look, I like Daniel Jones as a lifelong Giant fan. If he ain't the guy, he's got to go. You can like who you like. But if it's not working, there has to be accountability. And you've heard me say it a thousand times on this program before. And there's a lot of guys who have been doing this longer. There's a lot of guys that get paid to do this. There's a lot of guys who've got a million more followers than I do. I don't call for jobs. This guy's got to go. He should be fired. But what I will say, systemic changes need to take place sometimes. You saw that you, We've seen that. We've had that conversation with the Yankees. The Mets have recently gone through it. The Giants did it. It sucks, but it happens. I don't know how much more the Jets can go on and throw out excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. And you never hear a thing about coaching. And I know rebuilds are hard, but how much time does Joe Douglas need to make a dent? Even a, 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 a one position improvement on this offensive line. Look at what the Cleveland Browns have done this year if you want to use an injury as an excuse. Christ, you could take the Giants stretch over the last month. Winning games in the NFL with a third-string quarterback and crap offensive line. Cleveland's going to go to the playoffs with a 38-year-old quarterback and Joe Flacco, who they called off the couch, who's still got a cannon of an arm, upheaval on that offensive line, injuries on the defense, and they are still winning high-leverage games. While you got to have the talent to do so, bringing other people in and who you have on the roster and how the roster is built, that comes down to managerial stuff, and that comes down to coaching. Kevin Stefanski and, and that entire group in Cleveland should be given a standing ovation for what they've been able to do through the hardships and without pissing and moaning and making excuses. I'm not saying injuries don't factor in. Of course they do. It would be absurd to think otherwise. But at some point, folks, good coaching and good decision-making must show face. And that hasn't happened with the Jets organization in many years. This is not just a solid thing. This is not Al Groh. This is not Herman Edwards. 
Eric Mangini. This is systemic. And this is a problem. And I think at the moment, while change is probably necessary and needed, much like the New York Giants will probably go into next season with Daniel Jones as the starting quarterback, the Jets are going to go into next season with Rob Sala as head coach. Because you, you, we really haven't been given any inclination from the organization otherwise. Now, you, you want to look about why, why the, the, the following couple of weeks, the final weeks in the NFL were important. We talked about that with the Giants from looking, getting a deeper evaluation of Tommy DeVito some of the weaponry that you might have, a Jalen Hyatt, Hyatt, how can we get him the football? Let's see what this kid could do a little more. Is there anything else on the roster uh, that might be able to piggyback the, some of the success DeVito's had with Saquon Barkley? The Jets are probably going into April and this offseason. Barring a monster setback, Rodgers is the Jets quarterback next season when he's going to be 40-plus. So you have to, have to, have to, must prioritize the offensive line. Jets currently pick uh, seventh in the draft. Giants are currently picking sixth. This is a good offensive line draft. Guys, that might be available. Ola Fashuno is a monster from Penn State. Offensive tackle. Kid's a junior. You got another junior, the left tackle from Notre Dame, Joe Walt. These are two first-round picks. I think tackle is amongst the biggest needs for the New York Jets. And there's a, an, an overabundance at that position in this draft. Because I think it would be foolish to think that any other position early in that draft that the Jets would target outside of offensive line, specifically tackle help, would be something to be taken seriously. Now, you need center help as well. That comes later in the draft. There's a young kid, Zach Frazier, out there from West Virginia, who's a big body. You're going to hear a lot of names. Sed Van Pran, the starting center from Georgia. Oregon's going to pump a bunch of them out. This is a deep offensive line draft, and it's something the Jets have to take advantage of. I think Joe Alt, the left tackle from Notre Dame, would look perfect on the left side of that Jets offensive line or even the right side, wherever you wanted to put them. And that's where they have to focus their evaluations the last three weeks of the season and then on into the offseason heading into April's draft. All right, I want to get into uh, this week's picks. Already underway is week 16, and that's a biggie. With three weeks left in the season, you've got San Francisco. Probably, I think a lot of people still sleep on Baltimore. I'm not. You know, I love Miami, but San Francisco has got to be the odds-on favorite here to win the Super Bowl. You've got Philly, Dallas, Baltimore, Miami. I guess we can't rule out the Chiefs. And think about this. We'll look at the playoff picture now, prior to the picks. If the Buffalo Bills, who right now are on the outside looking in, are able to play their way into the postseason, you talk about a dangerous football team, that's the definition of one. And it's not because of Josh Allen. What Buffalo did to Dallas last week was surgical, and they did it 
by pounding the football. James Cook was all over the place. And if Buffalo, knowing they have the quarterback like Josh Allen, who's had a remarkable season, I mean, this is a, a Bills team that's got quality wins and and are snake bit in a couple of areas with really close losses. If this team is able to play its way into the tournament, watch out. Because if there's a dedication to running the football, you know, at the snap of a figure, Buffalo can back up that run game with an aerial attack that is as good as any in the National Football League. And you've got the Rams in the NFC. Playoff start today via Thursday's win over the Saints, 30-22. to The Rams would be in. Talk about playing this out of nowhere. You go back to preseason where Matthew Stafford was still getting acclimated with receivers who their reports were leaked, including by his wife, that he didn't even know the names of these guys. Now he's got Puka Nakua, the rookie from BYU out of the fifth round, is right there with C.J. Stroud for Rookie of the Year honors after another monster game. So there's a lot going on here when you look at what's on the table for Week 16, which kicked off Thursday night. I had the Rams over the Saints, and that's how it turned out. Rams were running away with it. Saints closed the gap, um, and it got tight down the stretch, but the Rams were just too much. And you look at the Cincinnati-Pittsburgh game, and I'm going to turn around real quick. I mean, this was as bad a performance that you could have taken for a Cincinnati team on the road. Uh, so by all accounts, I'm going to lose that game because I went with the Bengals over the Steelers uh, in pit. You get Buffalo Chargers tonight. That game, for those listening live, will kick off in about 27 minutes, 8 p.m. on the East Coast. The Chargers are a mess. They've made coaching changes already. Brandon Staley is gone. Um, Buffalo goes in there obviously needing the game. And I think they'll get it on the road um, uh, Saturday night. Cleveland is then in Houston to open up the Christmas Eve slate. That's a 1 o'clock game. This is a big game. This is a huge game because when you look at this playoff picture, you've got both teams. If the playoff started right now, they're in. The Browns, the fifth seed. The Texans, the seventh in the AFC. So if you're a Buffalo Bill fan, you are rooting your ass off for the Cleveland Browns because Houston's the team you're chasing right now. Now, Buffalo probably not all that happy that the Steelers are beating the Bengals, but something had to give there anyway with two eight and seven teams. So this is that's a that's a game. Dropping that game, Pitts, uh, Pittsburgh winning over Cincinnati drops Cincinnati to eight and seven, bumps Pittsburgh up one spot to ninth. So they flip flop, and now it's going to be a tall order. For some of these teams, Broncos included, Bengals, Steelers, to play their way into this tournament. Pittsburgh did itself some justice tonight, but they're going to need W's and they're going to need help moving forward. But I like Cleveland going to Houston and getting that win in, in, a, in a tough environment where you know that fan base is going to be going nuts. I'm going to trust the Browns on the road here. A lot of good things this season. Give me Cleveland. Detroit goes to Minnesota. That's a 1 o'clock Christmas Eve. The Lions frustrate you. They're a legit team, and it's amazing. They're going to be a home favorite in the postseason this year at some point. I like them Christmas Eve. Things really started to unravel uh, for this Minnesota team. I know they're right there right now. If the playoffs started today, Minnesota is in as the seventh seed. 
I just don't trust them enough. You know, we've we've seen the good with Minnesota, and we've seen the bad, and the bad is lousy. So I like Detroit on the road going in there. I think it might be closer than many people might think, but I I can't trust myself to do anything other uh, than pick Detroit here. Green Bay, Carolina. I know Carolina's got fight. They made the coaching change uh, a couple of weeks ago. Reich out, um, and they pick up win number two last week. Green Bay's had that Jekyll Hyde type um, build to it all season. The, you know, the good early on with Jordan Love, and then turnover prone midseason, then really got it going again. And then you see what happens against the Giants, where Green Bay's offense basically just imploded and they couldn't get stops down the stretch. I'm going to go Packers here on the road in Carolina. That's a one o'clock Christmas Eve. But I think that one also tight. A lot of people are going to take Atlanta at home this weekend. Over it visiting Indianapolis. I'm not. I I enjoy chaos. I like this time of the year with this playoff picture getting murky. Right now, and you look at this with Atlanta, I mean, Atlanta's a team that could have done itself a lot of good by racking up wins against division opponents, and they haven't been able to do it. Six and eight right now, pretty much out of the wild card picture. Their path is going to be via the NFC South which they're trailing Tampa Bay right now by a game at 6-8, and eight, Tampa Bay 7-7. Seven and seven. I think the Colts go in there, and I think the Colts win this one pretty comfortably. I, I know people get frustrated with the inconsistencies of this in the offense, but the same could be said for Atlanta, and I'm not trusting, even at home, Spencer Ritter. I like the Colts here. Seattle goes to Tennessee. That's a 1 o'clock same day. I'm on Seattle there. Drew Locke last week, that was a masterful performance down the stretch. He threw some really good balls uh, in crunch time against a good Eagles secondary to get that win and keep Seattle uh, in contention. Right now, if the playoffs started, Seattle the let the first team out, eighth in the NFC. I like them to win this game over Tennessee, who's got some talent, and Tennessee's going to spend the last three weeks of the season learning and, and trying to see who they're going to invest in, um, specifically at the quarterback position. Uh, moving forward, this is a big stretch for them, but I think Seattle's too much. The, Washington's going to go to the Jets this week. I'm going to take the Jets at home because, in my opinion, the Commanders are the worst team in football. They have nothing going for them. They haven't been able to do it. Uh, McLaurin and Robinson have been banged up the last couple of weeks. Sam Howell's really fallen off a cliff after at one point, it was only a few weeks ago, about a month ago, was leading the league um, in, in pretty strong form. Uh, in passing, I, I, there's nothing good happening uh, in the nation's capital from a football perspective. And, I, you know, I think the Jets actually get it done Christmas Eve uh, in New Jersey. Jacksonville goes to Tampa. You know what? I went back and forth with this one. I'm a Trevor Lawrence guy. But with concussion issues, is Lawrence going to be ready to roll? Right? Both of these teams have high importance with this game. The AFC South is a is a tight race. And the Jaguars with tiebreaker are the first place team barely over the Colts and the Texans. So Jacksonville needs the game just like Tampa needs the game to stay in, on top in the NFC South. I'm going Bucks here. Give me Mayfield and company to kick off the four o'clock slate on Christmas Eve. I like Tampa Bay over Jacksonville. Arizona goes to Chicago. I'll take the Bears there in a nothing game. Uh, it will have an impact on draft status um, as a lot of teams will jockey 
for those top two spots. Chicago, clearly, uh, you would think, uh, in that quarterback mix. And then Arizona probably eyeing someone uh, along the lines of a Marvin Harrison Jr. as well, who's expected to be a top three pick. Dallas goes to Miami. I like Miami here. Look, I know Dallas was embarrassed last week against a Bills team that absolutely needed the game. And there is a part of me that would love to give my tip of the cap in this one to the Cowboys, but I can't do it. I can't do it with Miami at home with just the confidence boost they got from just the complete dismantling of Gang Green last week. Miami's good. They're Super Bowl good. And I like them to beat another team who is Super Bowl caliber in Dallas. I like Miami to get it done at home. Patriots go to Denver. I'm not a fan of either one of these teams. I can't figure out Denver's defense. I know they are in this mix. It's 7-7. Seven and seven. They need the game. Look, Denver's going to win this game. I just think it's going to be ugly. Uh, and are we down the stretch and three weeks left in the season of seeing Bill Belichick on the on the Patriots sideline uh, for the final time the, the next couple of weeks? It, it's certainly something uh, to keep an eye on here moving down the stretch. I mean, this is a huge, every game it seems like this week has some sort of impact on the playoff picture, including the next one. 4.30, Christmas Day. Giants go to Philly. Philly's in the playoffs. They know that. But they want the division, and they're trying to catch a San Fran team or already hammered them. They're going to need help there, obviously. Look, Giants, it's beyond pride for this. You heard it all week. I mean, we've been talking about it for years. This talent gap between the Giants, Eagles, and the Cowboys. At some point, it's going to have to start closing. Giants are not going to win Monday, Christmas. The 25th. It's not going to happen. I also don't think what happened last year in the playoffs is going to happen either. Philly's reeling, lost three in a row. They need the game just to get back to the type of football and on the surface they were when they were 5-0 and and 8-1 and and amongst the best teams in the league before this recent three-game losing streak. Especially last week where they had the game and weren't able to close. Philly gets it done. I think it's closer. Then people think Giants are, I think, about a 13-and-a-half-point dog. I think they cover. Uh, last game, 8-15, Monday night, Christmas night, Baltimore at San Fran. It's a rematch of the 2013 Super Bowl. It's going to be a good one. And I think you could legitimately see this as being the Super Bowl this year. Both of these teams are that good. This is a Baltimore team that does it on both sides. Lamar Jackson, despite what... I think some people just don't like him because they don't like him. Lamar Jackson's freaking phenomenal. And so is the kid on on the opposing side, Brock Purdy, who's probably not getting enough MVP love in his own right. Niners are home. I'll go Niners in this one. I think it's going to be a great game. It's At least on paper, it's a hell of a way to end a week. And then we wrap up week 16, folks. There's only two weeks left in a regular season. And there's going to be a lot of jockeying that takes place. I mean, there's a lot of good football to be played. You know the storylines. I'll have them covered on this program for you. This is this is what it's all about. We basically said that a week ago, two weeks ago. We started it. The last month of the season is really where things start to fall into place. And I think you saw that tonight with the Pittsburgh-Cincinnati game. I, per- I liked the way Browning was playing coming into that game, and I was totally wrong. Pittsburgh played the best game it's played this season with Mason Rudolph under center in place of the injured Kenny Pickett, and they absolutely dominated the game. 
So this is the time of the year where it really starts to get fun, especially if you don't have a dog in the fight. And I think we're, we're in for a real treat as football fans, and we'll have you absolutely covered every step of the way right here on STWPJ. I'm Sensei Felicia. I'm Sensei Mike Karim, and we are the owners and instructors of Dento Tekina, Judo Jiu-Jitsu, and MMA Dojo on Victory Boulevard in Staten Island, New York. If you're looking to improve or refocus your overall physical and mental health, come join us on the mat where we offer a variety of classes from ages four and up for all experience levels. Whether you're interested in self-defense, learning the traditional Japanese fighting methods of Judo and Jiu-Jitsu, or taking our MMA conditioning courses, we have what you need to take your training methods to the next level. So come join us at Dento Tekina Judo Jiu-Jitsu and MMA Dojo on Staten Island. Yeah, again, we've saying the last couple of weeks, huge thanks to our sponsors who you hear from now uh, in the program each and every week, Dento Tekina Judo Jiu-Jitsu uh, and MMA Dojo right here uh, in New York City via Staten Island. Outside of everything that's taking place in the National Football League, and it's a lot, what you have going on in college football, I mean, it, this is the best time of the year as well. We'll get the final four, uh, New Year's Day, ESPN will anchor the coverage there, Michigan, Alabama in one semifinal, Washington, Texas in another, and then you get the national championship game a week later, Monday, January 8th, uh, which will also be uh, on ESPN. But you've got a big slate of bowls that will take us into that Final Four in the New Year's Six games. I mean, if you look around at some of the matchups, the, the Holiday Bowl traditionally is one of the better non-major bowls each and every year that takes an ACC and a Pac-12. This year, you're going to get Louisville-USC. And oh, what could have been for the USC Trojans this year with the hot start, uh, defending Heisman winner Caleb Williams, who's probably going to be either the first or the second pick, you would think, uh, in this April's draft. And then you've got the speed of this Louisville team under Brian Brom, year one as the head coach, comes back, takes over the program, gets marquee victories all over the place, including one at home where they throat-stomped Notre Dame. He brings a top 15 Louisville team into this holiday bowl that's going to be uh, in a couple days on Wednesday, December 27th. Look, if you're looking for things to watch from a sporting perspective during this holiday season, look no further than college basketball and college football. This holiday bowl is going to be awesome, right? Uh, ESPN will have it 7 o'clock, 7.30 kickoff. I'm going to go Louisville in this game, and it very well, I mean, we all expect this is the final time you'll probably be seeing Caleb Williams play college football, and I think it ends uh, in a loss for him. And you look down this roster with a lot of these games going into next week, and then as we creep closer to that final four, the Alamo Bowl is always usually a good one. And you got Oklahoma, Arizona this year. That's Thursday, December 28th. I don't think there's been a better story, a more enjoyable story than what Arizona, maybe Missouri. Right, but yeah, probably Missouri, who's playing in the Cotton Bowl. More on that in a minute. Then this Arizona team has been very good as well. The Wildcats have really come back. Obviously, a basketball school, and they're a perennial power once again. Uh, currently ranked number fourth on the hardwoods in college basketball. But what they've been able to do with this football program and reinvigorate it, bring back that explosive offense and that timely defense. Now they're going to crack on national TV against another perennial power in Oklahoma who rolls in 10-2. and two. This could be the best of the non-major bowl games that we see um, in, in this Alamo Bowl on December 28th. 
And you know what? I like Arizona in the game. I really do. I know the money's going to be on Oklahoma. People will be throwing their bets on Oklahoma. Give me the cats in this game. Uh, I think that's going to be a great one. It'll be a nice way to go into that weekend. You get the Sun Bowl, Notre Dame, Oregon State. Uh, Notre Dame just announcing a new offensive coordinator. Look, as a lifelong Notre Dame fan, um, now in year two of, of the Marcus Freeman era, and Coach Freeman will have the chance to go for back-to-back 10-win seasons to not just start his Notre Dame career, but to start his college head coaching career. That's remarkable. And people be, like to be hard on coaches everywhere, especially when you root for the teams. We're not even through two years, and this guy has completely revamped an entire program, put him back in that national picture, and quite honestly, they were a couple of boneheaded decisions away from probably only having their lone loss of the season being to that Louisville team. And now news comes out earlier in the week that Notre Dame founded its new offensive coordinator, and it's a familiar face in Mike Denbrock. And the best news there for Notre Dame in bringing Mike Denbrock back, every single Notre Dame alum, Subway alum, diehard fan, whatever, whoever, always complained that Notre Dame wouldn't spend the money, they wouldn't swing for the fences and go get the big fish. This is the big fish. Because Mike Denbrock was recently given a fresh contract to be the offensive coordinator at LSU. And all Marcus Freeman, and it brings a smile to my face, was go and poach Denbrock back from LSU, who was coached by none other than Brian Kelly. This is a Mike Denbrock who knows Notre Dame as well as anyone. Served under Tyrone Willingham from 2002 to 2004. Knows how to win football games. Guy's seen some things. He's seen some good during those times and some bad. Part of a four-win team during the Brian Kelly era at one point at Notre Dame. And a five-win team in 2003 under Tyrone Willingham. And he just got done coaching up the Heisman Trophy winner in Jaden Daniels. So now Notre Dame is going to parlay, already having a hothead coaching candidate in Al Golden as its defensive coordinator, a young and growing head coach in Marcus Freeman, now with a veteran who's familiar with the program, who can go out and be your lead dog on the recruiting trail, relate to kids in their homes, bring them to Notre Dame and win football games. That's huge. New AD, new president in South Bend, and you're already reaping the benefits of the new direction that Notre Dame fans have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for for decades. And it finally happens. We'll get to see some of the future for both of these teams. DJ Uyunglele not going to play for Oregon State after entering the transfer portal. Sam Hartman announced he's going to get ready for the draft. He will not be playing for Notre Dame, the quarterback uh, who transferred over this year uh, via the portal from Wake Forest. So it's expected that the uh, New Jersey native Steve Angeli We'll get the start for Notre Dame under center. We'll probably see some of Kenny Mitchie. I like the Irish in the game. They'll be the favorite. Uh, no, Audric Estime, uh, one of the, the nation's leading rusher, um, is going to prepare for the draft as well. You'll see this across the board, and it, it does take a bit away from some of these games, uh, but I'd be hard-pressed to really slam kids who decide that they want to sit out and, and prepare for their futures. But I think we're also at the point where you might see in the future kids elect to stay now in college with a lot of these NIL th- deals. 
know, I think that is something that we might see where there's all of this money floating around the college game. Hey, maybe I can stick around for markability purposes, finish my education, and then go into the draft and still make a ton of money. Right? You walk onto any college campus, you can get gear with players' names, image, and likeness on them. That's the meaning of NIL. That never used to be the deal. And I think that might have an impact. I'd like to believe it might have a positive impact moving forward if they can get the NIL stuff and the transfer portal under control. We'll continue to talk about that as we go. Uh, now, certainly not the time or the place. Uh, you look at the other major bowls outside of the Final Four, Cotton Bowl, Ohio State, Missouri. That's going to be a great game. Year four, Eli Drinkwitz, he's, done a, he's laid the blueprint of what it looks like to build a program from the ground up. Missouri, Ohio State in this one, I think you go Tigers here. I like Missouri. I like the direction of this group. I like the leadership of Eli Drinkwitz. And I think you learn a lot from watching a program being constructed like Missouri was. They've had years in the past where Chase Daniel had them at years back, number two in the country at one point. Gary Pinkle, the head coach. But this is different. This is legitimate SEC football. And I think you'll see that against a really good Ohio State team. Penn State, Ole Miss in the Peach Bowl. Uh, by the way, that Cotton Bowl, the December 29th. The Peach Bowl, December 30th. You've got the Orange Bowl, Florida State against Georgia. I mean, you, you think those are the two most unhappy teams in America that are going to be playing in that game? The Orange Bowl and between Florida State, a team that just openly got screwed in public in front of the world. And then Georgia, who was the number one team in the country, won 29 games in a row, loses by three in the SEC championship to its biggest rival, and they don't just get bounced out of the tournament. They get dropped behind a team that the wonderful committee said wasn't good enough to be ranked ahead of these other teams without its starting quarterback, but is good enough to be ranked one spot ahead of a team who won 29 in a row in the last two national championships. You can't make it up. So they'll play in the Orange Bowl December 30th in what I think will probably be a lower-scoring game than many people think. Um, it'll certainly be an emotional game. The Orange Bowl always carries water, uh, regardless of the matchups and the storylines. So I think that'll be something worth watching. you got the Fiesta and the Citrus Bowls as well. Oregon Liberty, Iowa, Tennessee. I mean, if you, you want to see low scoring, I mean, Tennessee can put it up, and Iowa's defense is good. Iowa, Tennessee, on New Year's Day, take the under. Oregon Liberty, New Year's Day, Fiesta Bowl, take the over. Liberty comes in 23rd in the country, the highest-ranked Power 5 team at 12-0. Oregon and Dan Lanning with that high-flying offense in Bo Nix. You might see an upset there in the Fiesta Bowl. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Oregon's only losses, both of them to Washington. Washington's in the tournament. That's what separated Oregon from being in the Final Four. I'm not ready to go out on that limb just yet because I have one show before I make those picks, but I'm saying in the Fiesta Bowl, maybe upset. You might be looking at upset there if you're a Liberty guy. And then obviously the Final Four New Year's Day and the National Championship January 8th. We have so much time to talk about that. There are just so many other good bowl games. Uh, you had the Armed Forces Bowl, Air Force handling James Madison today and what was a good game. Uh, Kansas and UNLV are going to play later uh, next week uh, in the Guaranteed Rate Bowl. Carolina, West Virginia in the Mayo Bowl. That's usually a fun one as well. 
a lot of people don't invest in these because they think it's rinky dink. But if you go down on paper in the matchups and look at who's playing, it's a good time to be a sports fan, specifically uh, if you are someone who enjoys college football like I do. And I'll do my best to keep you abreast and give you my insight and some picks and analysis as the bowl season continues uh, moving forward. And the same can be said with college basketball, uh, which we will talk more about momentarily. Make sure to leave a review. This makes our day and fuels future episodes. Sports Today with Peter J. Yeah, as fun as college football is, and obviously you guys by now, I would think the viewership and downloads continue to go up. You know how to subscribe across Podbean, Apple, uh, Spotify, iHeart, TuneIn, all those platforms, Google as well, and, and even on LinkedIn as well. Uh, the show posts to LinkedIn uh, each and every week on my business profile. Um, as fun as college football can be, we, we've we gotten off to a great opening month and a half of, of college basketball. And when you look around the landscape of the top 25 now, there's really a lot to be like. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you the five teams that I've really enjoyed watching the most this season. If you haven't seen the Houston Cougars play yet, you've got to sit down and watch this Calvin Sampson team. LJ Cryer, Emmanuel Sharp, it's a veteran group with three seniors in the starting five. And they know how to win come tournament time. Right now, third in the AP poll, 12-0. and This is a group that has been tournament tested the past couple of years, and they are a legitimate, folks, a legitimate national title contender right now. This Houston team might not be number one in the AP poll, but they are the team that I have enjoyed watching the most. Right behind them this year, in my personal top five, I got Arizona. They're four in the AP poll, nine nine and one. Kashad Johnson is as electrifying as they come. Both ends of the floor. And oh, by the way, this is an Arizona team that's got six guys averaging in double figures already. You'd have to think that they're built to go deep in March because they're built deep on that bench where they can go seven, eight, nine guys confidently into that tenth. This Arizona team led by Johnson is as good as advertised. UConn's right there as well. I know they got beat up a couple nights ago by Seton Hall, and that's a Seton Hall team that's kind of um, reimagining itself with Shaheen Holloway, who's done a nice job to bring the energy back to the Jersey School. The defending champs 10 and 2 open the season 7 and 0. And you look at this UConn team from a year ago when they went on that great run under Coach Hurley. They've already got wins this year over then number nine North Carolina, then number 10 Gonzaga, and then number 15 Texas. The losses are good too. Didn't play well against Seton Hall, but then had a four point loss to Kansas, who at the time was number five in the country. And is the team I'm going to talk about next because they're number two in the AP poll. But this UConn team is legit. Kansas, 10-1, second, as I just said, in the AP poll. They had a November loss to Marquette, who's another team that you would think, right, that win for Marquette was to win the Maui Invitational. For Kansas to, to lose that game and then come back and knock off Kentucky, Tennessee, Connecticut, Indiana, Missouri, this team is legit. Hunter Dickinson is uh, with Zach Eady from Purdue among the best big men in the country. Kevin McCullough Jr., you got points, rebounds, and assists from him. 
So you know what you're getting from this Kansas team and Bill Self because they've proven that they can do it in the tournament. Now, Purdue, Edie's back. Braden Smith, Lance Jones, backing him up. We've talked about this time and time again in now year 19 of the Matt Painter era. When is it going to be Purdue's time? And it certainly wasn't last year and the year before. You don't want to get too carried away. Currently, the AP number one team, 11-1 and one overall. This time, the national title talk around the Boilermakers does feel real. You got to win over Marquette. I misspoke before. That was to win the Maui Invitational. They've got wins over Alabama. Already a win over Arizona. At the time, Arizona was number one. They've beaten Tennessee, Gonzaga, and Iowa already. So there's legitimacy here, but will it translate to March for a deep run and potential national title victory where we've seen it collapse so many times before? I just think it feels different because I think between Smith and Jones backing up Edie, I think that's legitimate guard play that Purdue now has. They have the manuscript on how to win and the coach to get them there. And now they've surrounded the defending player of the year with that. And look, you'll look around the nation. You've got fun teams. Colorado State's 10-1. and one. I think they're 15th or 16th in the poll. James Madison, as good as they were in football this year, they're a top 20 team in basketball, 11-0. FAU, a Final Four a year ago out of nowhere as an 8 seed, number 14 and 9-2. and two, And they've beaten Texas A&M and Butler to this point. I'll tell you who's a fun team also, despite a 7-5 and five record, and it's Michigan State. Because when you look at Michigan State's schedule to this point, they hammered Baylor a couple nights ago, number six team in the country. But Michigan State, with that win over Baylor, has played Duke, Arizona, James Madison, and Wisconsin. Now, they've lost to Duke, Zona, JMU, and Wisconsin. But don't you think those games are going to prove well in March if they're able to get there? With Tom Izzo driving the boat? I think it's pretty obvious. So that's kind of a little look at what you have from college football, uh, college basketball to this point. And I, I really think at this point in the year, you know, we with the college basketball season coming to an end, NFL heading into the playoffs, we're set up for really getting everything, every value of the dollar as far as college basketball is concerned because of what we have in front of us. Battle-tested teams and then new teams like a James Madison or a somewhat of a new team in FAU despite last year's run and Colorado State that are right there. Plus, the, Princeton's off to a good start. You get the mid-major teams as well. St. John's has been a fun story in the first year under Rick Patino. I mean, you've got storylines there. And it's going to be a hell of a lot of fun um, as we continue to move forward. And obviously, I want to wrap the show um, with some baseball. You get the news 11 days after Shohei Otani signed with the Dodgers that Yoshinobu Yamamoto had inked a 12-year, $325 million deal with none other than the Dodgers after turning down offers from the Yankees, the Mets, and the San Francisco Giants. Now, the interesting thing with Yamamoto as it relates to, say, the Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees lose out. and But when you break down how this sort of went, it's not like the Yankees got out-hustled. I think Yamamoto 
from go wanted to be a Dodger. Because contractually, it's a 12-year, $325 million contract with the Dodgers, and he gets a $50 million signing bonus, six- and nine-year buyouts. The Mets gave the same offer of 12 325 The Yankees gave 10 at $300 million. That's an average annual value that was more than the 27 mil the Dodgers were offering. Less years, higher AAV. Yankees also offered an opt-out after the fifth year and no backloaded money. So it, it, over five years, it would have been, I think, a shade over 200 mil for the Yankees. But they would have known at that point that the possibility for Yamamoto bailing after five was on the table. It didn't match the offer that they gave Gary Cole, and it, it, but it was close. And I think what, is, what, what rubs some people the wrong way is now, traditionally, the mindset that the New York Yankees don't let players like this get away. The last big fish we've seen was Giancarlo Stanton, who almost looked like had one foot in the door a couple years ago in Boston, and you wake up the next morning and he's a Yankee. I don't think that's what happened this time. It seems good off for Giants, good off for Mets, good off for Yankees, good off for Dodgers. That Yamamoto basically had his mind made up. He did his personal due diligence as a 25-year-old coming over as a very marketable young kid with an outstanding resume from Japan who did his due diligence as he should. He wanted to be a Dodger from day one. And that's what that says. And now when you look at what the Dodgers have done here, they're a billion dollars in the hole. More than that. For Yamamoto and Otani. Inked these deals. Well, I guess when they officially uh, become inked, 11 days apart. From a Yankee perspective, look, you got who you really wanted in Juan Soto. And I think the plan was to land Soto and Yamamoto, get two birds, as opposed to just wrapping everything up in Otani, who's a one-way player this year, we think, offense only, due to the injury to the throwing arm. Japanese lefty Shota Imanaga is still on the market. Jordan Montgomery, who knows the Yankees well. Blake Snell is a name out there, two-time Cy Young winner, including last year. Um... Corbin Burns is reportedly on the trade market. There's options there for the Yankees. There's options there for the Mets. There's options there for the Giants, the D-backs, so on and so forth. But I think so. we got so wrapped up in the Yamamoto story and to say, you know, the Yankees lost their own game. Well, the Mets made a damn good offer to this kid. So did the Giants. And so did the Yankees. He gets 25 mil more by going to the Dodgers than he would have with the Yankees. The Mets had matched that 12, 325 from the Dodgers. Yankees' deal on a year-to-year basis was sexier with the opt-out after five as opposed to six and nine for the Dodgers. The kid wanted to be a Dodger. It's right there in front of you. That's all that means. And there's nothing wrong with that. Balance of power here without the cap in Major League Baseball. Might it start going off the rails? How do you compete? 
God forbid you have a bad draft if you're, say, an A's team that's going through transitional phase, especially with geographics, with going from California to Vegas, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Cincinnati Reds, even the Diamondbacks from a year ago, Milwaukee in these smaller markets, even the Chicago teams. I mean, we just saw the Yankees and the Mets lose out with these high bids. You know, from a Yankee perspective, when you're younger, you see these things. Yeah, it's awesome. You're throwing the money around. I remember the one year the Yankees signed CC Sabathia, A.J. Burnett, and Mark Sherry turned it into an 09 title, and they already had A-Rod. How do you beat this Dodger team with how they load up now? I mean, this is all goes according to plan, and it's got to mesh. It's got to gel. you got to do it in October. I mean, this is, this is beyond the freight train. This is something, if it materializes, the likes that we've never seen. Certainly financially, to have over a billion dollars invested into two players. Does it create great stories? Does it create something you damn well know, if you're a sports fan, what you're going to be doing the first time Yamamoto takes that mound? It's probably going to be a, be a Sunday night baseball ESPN game, uh, 8 o'clock, and you will be watching the game. Same thing when Otani steps into that batter's box for the Dodgers the first time. Just like you were when A-Rod did it with the Yankees. There's certainly marketability there. And now the kid goes out on the West Coast of the United States with Shohei Otani. I just... The odds-on favorite down the stretch was the Yankees. And I'm scratching my head there saying, why wouldn't this kid go to the Dodgers? Outside of the funds, outside of the marketability... Otani's right there, and they can do it together, and that looks like what's going to happen for years and years to come, which is a problem for the rest of Major League Baseball. I think it's something that needs to be looked at, especially without this cap. I think that is something that's been talked about for a while because it, you know, you'll have the luxury tax, uh, teams wanting to, to, to front load money, other teams want to back load money. What are we offering uh, on, on a year-to-year basis to compete? How do we compete if we're the smaller market teams? I think it's something that can be better regulated without penalizing the team. If you have the money, you should be able to spend it. I just think there's a better way to approach this. What that way is, I don't know. I don't know. That's above my pay grade. But it's it's conversations we certainly can have as we, as we move forward. It was fun watching that develop. And the bottom line is Yamamoto's going to the Dodgers and he's going to join Otani. And the bottom line here is our time is done for this week. I will see you should be back in the regular Friday time slot next week, which would be Friday, December 29th at 7 p.m. on the East Coast. A big thank you to all our listeners, those who sent messages in our message board throughout the show and on social media. Obviously, you all know where to subscribe. Sports Today with Peter J. Uh, Apple Playlist, uh, Apple Podcasts, iHeart, TuneIn, Samsung, right here on Podbean, Google Podcasts as well. I'll see you all next week. Enjoy the holiday. Enjoy the Christmas time. Stay safe. Enjoy it all. And I will talk to you guys in about six days' time. As always, go Irish. Listen to Sports Today with Peter J. Every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. We'll see you there.